0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 85. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people, thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever, wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou Show us thy mercy, O Lord. And grant us thy salvation. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Turn thy face, O Lord, from our sins, and put away all thy wrath and anger from us. Grant peace unto thy church, and mercifully blot out all our iniquities. Put away the guilt of our pleasures from before thine eyes, and grant us the medicine of pardon. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who speaketh peace unto his saints. Glory be to the Son, in whom mercy and truth are met together. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the loving kindness of the Lord. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We continue to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this morning we come to question 27, which asks... Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Well, having considered in questions 24 to 26 how Christ redeems us as our prophet, priest, and king, we come now to a consideration of the earthly life of Christ, which can be divided into two stages. The first stage is what we call Christ's humiliation, and the second, his exaltation. According to the Catechism, Christ's humiliation encompasses the entirety of his life prior to the resurrection. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Christ, quote, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the eternal Son of God, who is all glorious, all perfection, the creator of you, chose to be born into this world as a helpless baby. He was wrapped and swaddled and laid in a manger. He was born under the law and endured the many miseries of this life with its toil and difficulties. Not only did the eternal Son of God humble himself by taking on the form of a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. When Jesus was falsely accused and could have vindicated himself or could have fought back and destroyed his adversaries, He chose instead to remain silent and to suffer. As the prophet Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 7. When any of us are falsely accused, we instantly want to vindicate ourselves and defend our good name. We cannot stand to be humiliated. We do not like to have people think ill of us, especially when it is lies and gossip that is being spread about us. It is very hard for human, for human beings to suffer injustice in silence. And yet look at Christ and his long humiliation for you. Jesus suffered the worst of all injustices in that in him, God himself was being condemned for breaking God's law. Jesus was condemned for blasphemy. Jesus was condemned for sabbath breaking. Jesus was condemned for conspiracy with the devil. When the Jews shouted, "We have no king but Caesar," they condemned God to die. This is the humiliation the Son of God endured because he loves his enemies. And as it says in 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, there is no excuse for not confessing your sins. Christ died to forgive them. That's why he came. And if Christ humbled himself even unto death, then we can certainly humble ourselves in prayer before him. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. And Amen. 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 Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Be to God. I'd like to invite the stout household to come forward. We'll be baptizing Henry this morning. And three pews arise. (laughs) All right, first, a word about baptism. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This newborn child is what the Bible calls a son of the covenant, or a son of promise, Galatians 4.28. Because Henry was born to believing parents, according to 1 Corinthians 7.14, Henry is what the Bible calls holy. What this means is that Henry is set apart by God as a rightful recipient of salvation. And on the condition that Henry repents of his sins and trusts in Christ, he will indeed receive salvation. While baptism is no guarantee that any person will be saved, It is the place where God begins to treat us as his adopted children. From this day forward, God promises to be Henry's God. And that means God is going to teach Henry. God is going to discipline Henry. God is going to train Henry in the way that he should go. The way that God does this is primarily through Henry's parents, through many loving spankings, through attending church every Sunday, and hearing the word of God preached to him. If Henry receives this training and embraces God as his father, then when he is old, the proverb will come to pass that he will not depart from him. In baptism, God imprints his everlasting love upon our soul, and he gives us a new disposition to receive his grace. Just as a sleeping man is capable of running but may not be running at the moment, So also this child, by baptism, is made capable of loving God, even while his faculties to do so are still developing. It is the faith of the church that speaks and confesses on behalf of this child. And so even these infant baptisms are by a profession of faith. For we believe what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.39, that the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Therefore, it is with great joy and solemnity that I will now ask you, Joe, the following questions on behalf of your son. Do you desire this child to be baptized, and are you speaking on his behalf? Yes. Do you promise to raise this child as a Christian in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Yes. For this child, do you renounce the devil and all his works? Yes, I renounce them. Do you renounce the world and its lusts that are passing away? Yes, I renounce them. Do you renounce your own sinful desires and the flesh that wars against the Spirit? Yes, I renounce them. Do you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Yes, I believe. Do you love the Lord Jesus and promise to follow him all the days of your life? Yes. What is the Christian name of this child? Henry Moog Stout. On the basis of God's promises and this profession of faith, I baptize our brother Henry Moog Stout in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us welcome the newly baptized by giving him a charge, which is found in your bulletin. We welcome you, our beloved brothers in Christ, and charge you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to put off the old man and put on the new to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called, and to abound with love in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. These are the words of God. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe? But if we we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving to Christ all authority in heaven and on earth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for commissioning your apostles to proclaim your death and resurrection to all the earth. We thank you also for the faithful transmission of that message to us living in 2023, the year of our Lord's everlasting dominion. We ask now for your Holy Spirit to descend upon us and give us fresh faith and fresh courage. For we ask this in Christ's name and amen. Well, it is Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark's Gospel. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. On Monday, Jesus cursed a fig tree and enacted judgment on the temple. And now here on Tuesday, Jesus again comes to Jerusalem, but this time he is confronted by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The charge against Jesus is that he has no jurisdiction in the temple. The Jewish authorities want to see some license and registration, please. They want to know by what authority do you do these things. What follows in this brief uh, interchange is Jesus exposing the Jewish leadership for the frauds that they are. Jesus knows they are hypocrites. They are blind guides. They are seeking to murder him. And therefore, as the king who is wiser and greater greater than Solomon, Jesus brings the proverb to pass that whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. The question that the Jews are using to trap Jesus, to discount his authority, is going to end up rolling back on them and actually discounting their authority. And this is the way that god works what wicked men employ for the destruction of our lord will become the instrument of their own destruction this is the wisdom and justice of god so let us uh, watch as our master goes to work against the corruption in his house our text divides uh, neatly into four sections uh, in verses 27 to 28 the jewish leaders ask jesus by what authority he uh, by what authority he does what he does in verses 29 and 30, Jesus responds with a counter question. In verses 31 to 33a, the Jewish leaders deliberate and give no answer. And then in verse 33b, uh, Jesus likewise refuses to answer. So this passage is kind of uh, a Q&A session between two adversaries. On one hand, we have Jesus, who is prophet, Messiah, populist, and God. And on the other hand, we have uh, the Jewish elite and aristocracy. And the scene that uh, plays out here in the public square is a scene that will be a replay just a few days later, but in private, when Jesus is secretly captured, tried, and condemned in the middle of the night. So this scene really anticipates the charges that will lead to his crucifixion. They want to know, who are you, and by what authority do you come? So let's uh, expound our text, starting in verses 27 and 28. It says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do, the, to do these things? This reference to uh, the chief priests, scribes, and elders should remind us of what Jesus predicted back in Mark 8.31, where it says this, He began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is the beginning of those uh, foretellings that Jesus gave his disciples earlier. Now, uh, who are these three groups of people? Well, the chief priests were the highest, uh, what we would call kind of ecclesiastical or church uh, authority. They're the highest ecclesiastical authority. The scribes were uh, what we would call the highest legal or law authority. They're, they're the lawyers. They're the experts in the law. And then the elders are the highest non-priestly authorities. So they're, they're kind of more like uh, civil leaders, if you could uh, use those categories for the Jews. Together, uh, what these groups compose is a high council uh, in Jerusalem, which is sometimes called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. So, these are the heads of really the most influential families and people in Jerusalem. Kind of a modern equivalent would be uh, getting together all three branches of Congress. You know, get the president, uh, get uh, uh, the Supreme Court, get Congress together, and then also add in all the CEOs of the big Christian publishing companies, add all the bishops, the the denominational heads, and you gather them all together and have this really uh, important authoritative body. That's kind of like what this uh, body of people in Jerusalem are functioning like. So they're in the temple, They're likely in the outer court. And it is Jesus and his disciples on one side and this Jerusalem council on the other. And undoubtedly, uh, you know, Jesus is a popular guy. People know who these uh, men are. Uh, Undoubtedly, a large crowd is going to gather to see this showdown in the temple. So they ask Jesus, by what authority doest thou these things and who gave thee this authority to do these things? Now, I want you to think about how Jesus could have answered that question. You know who Jesus is. You know what he came to do. And this is the question that is posed to him. Why doesn't he just come out and answer them straight up? Jesus is God. He could have just said that right then and there. I'm God. I'm the creator. I made you. I am the word made flesh. I am that I am. But Jesus for some reason, chooses not to do this. He could have also said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, and if you look up my family lineage in your records, you'll see that I am the promised son of David who would be born in Bethlehem. I am the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, just like the scriptures foretold. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He could have also gone that route. But again, Jesus chooses not to say this either. Well, why is that? Well, think about why Jesus came in the first place. He came to offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners. Jesus says in John 10:17 and 18, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So in this great conflict between good and evil, between Jesus and Jerusalem, there is also this really deep irony that both sides want Jesus dead, just for very different reasons. Jesus wants to die to give his life to save the world. The chief priests want him dead because he is a threat to their power. But despite this kind of surface unity of purpose, uh, the time has not yet come for Jesus to offer up his life. Before he lays it down of his own accord, at his own will, on his own timetable, he comes to give these authorities one more chance to repent. And should they refuse, he is going to expose them for the wicked shepherds and frauds that they are. In a very real sense, this is how Jesus comes to judge. He's coming there to gather evidence, to hear testimony, to see as, an, as uh, an eyewitness himself to how the chief priests, scribes, and elders are doing. Are they obeying God's law? Are they doing justice and mercy? Are they teaching true doctrine? Jesus is kind of like uh, the owner of a company who dresses up as a customer to see how his supervisors and management are treating those they are called to serve. As God, Jesus is the owner of the temple. The temple is his house. As God, Jesus is the authority from which the chief priests, scribes, and elders derive their authority. And when we get to chapter 12, immediately following this scene, Jesus is going to give them the parable of the vineyard, or the parable of the vineyard owner, which essentially makes this same point. God is the owner of the vineyard, and these leaders are the wicked tenants who murder the owner's son. That's the story Jesus is going to give them immediately following this scene. So Jesus is kind of like, uh, it's like undercover boss, right? He goes to see how management is doing, and behold, uh, they're all going to get fired. So they want to know where Jesus' authority comes from, and Jesus answers with a counter question, verses 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Now this is one of those great trick questions that really ought to make you marvel at Christ's wisdom. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. He beats them at their own game. And in a certain respect, by posing this particular counter question, Jesus is indirectly giving them the answer to theirs. Because where did Jesus' authority come from? Well, humanly speaking, who ordained Jesus to the ministry? It was John, right? Jesus' baptism by John at 30 years of age was his ordination ceremony, after which his public ministry began. Moreover, who was John the Baptist? He was the son of Zecharias the priest, which means John was of priestly lineage, just like the chief priests were. He was the miracle son of Zecharias and Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. Luke one fifteen. And so John had all the right credentials for a, you know, lawfully ordained priest and prophet. He had the family lineage. You know, his, his father was one of the priests in the temple offering incense to God when an angel comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a son, right? And yet despite these signs and wonders, which were publicly known, right? There were people standing outside. The Jews knew this. They knew John's lineage. They knew who he was. Despite all of this, it says in Luke 7:30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's will for them and chose not to be baptized. So apart from Jesus' divine authority as being the very person of the word, the eternal son of God, he also had this publicly known ordination from a publicly recognized prophet who was descended from the priestly line. And so in a certain sense, Jesus' counter-question is a statement that his authority, at least humanly speaking, comes from John. And so whatever you think about John's authority is also what you should think about Christ's. If John's authority was from heaven, so also is Christ. That is the trap Jesus has set for them. So how do these chief priests, scribes, and elders answer? Verses 31 to 33a. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of men, and then it actually just breaks off here in Mark's, passage, and then we have the, the, uh, the narrator speaking. So, but if we shall say of men, dun, 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 and then narrator voice, they feared the people, for all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. So this Jerusalem council recognizes that if they say that John's authority was from heaven, they will condemn themselves as having rejected God's authority. They would have to admit they were wrong, which nobody ever wants to do, right? It's the last thing we ever want to do. And so they would like to say, this is what they want to say, they want to say that John's authority was from men. They want to discredit John. They would like to claim that John was a false prophet or some self-ordained rogue guy doing his own thing. They want to discredit his whole ministry. And this they would do, except that the masses believed John was a true prophet, and many, many had been baptized by him. So if they say John's authority was from men or was false, they would actually be endangering their own lives, and they know this. Uh, So in in the parallel passage in Luke 20, verse 6, it says, uh, But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So that's the part, part that Mark just leaves to your imagination. If we say of men, dot, 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 in Luke, it says, then all the people will stone us, okay? Because they would be uh, failing in their primary task, right? What is their job? It's to discern the will of God. It's to know who's a true authority and who is not. So Jesus has really cornered them. Either they acknowledge that John's authority and therefore also Jesus' authority are heavenly, or if they say it was for men, the people will stone them. And therefore, what do they decide to do? Well, they choose the best of their bad options, which is to plead ignorance. They tap out, they concede the question saying, uh, we cannot tell, right? Uh, There are many lessons here about human nature, right? What what do people do when they don't want to cop? They just say, "I I didn't know, right? They plead ignorance. Then in verse 33b, it says this, Jesus answering saith unto them, well, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus has just uh, publicly humiliated the highest authorities in Jerusalem. It's almost as if he's trying to get himself killed. They tried to double down on their rejection of Christ by questioning his authority and Jesus makes them pay. Now their authority is in question. It is this showdown specifically that precipitates and accelerates their desire to murder him. What do proud men fear the most? They fear losing their power. They fear losing their reputation, their authority, the basis of their pride. And with one question, Jesus has just threatened all of that. What was this council's whole job after all? It was to judge and discern the will of God. And if they cannot do that, They are showing themselves disqualified and unfit for office. The chief priests were in charge of maintaining proper and right worship at the temple. The scribes were in charge and expert in interpreting and applying the scriptures. And the elders were in charge of judging and enforcing those judgments, God's law. And so if these men, their best and brightest are unable to discern that John was a true prophet as he was, will they show themselves to be false judges who have no real interest in the truth. And so Jesus gives them just enough rope to hang themselves. All right, well, that is, that's our text. That's the exposition of our text. Let me uh, just make a couple applications now from it. Application number one. The longer you reject Christ's authority the more miserable your life becomes. The longer you reject Christ's authority, the more miserable your life becomes. Take this Jerusalem council as a cautionary tale for what happens when you reject Christ's authority. These men were given countless opportunities to repent. They had heard John preach. They had heard Jesus teach. They were eyewitnesses of the invisible God coming in the flesh. And yet because they did not love the truth, they were blind to his arrival. So blind that they murdered him. For many people, the obstacle to salvation is not a lack of information. It is not a lack of knowledge that keeps them out of the kingdom. It is rather their own unwillingness to admit they are wrong that keeps them from heaven. It's because men are stubborn. Women are stubborn. This is why it is true that hell is locked from the inside, right? What are sinners doing? They are holding the door shut. They don't want to let the light in. The pride of man is what prevents him from being truly happy. Do you think the chief priests, scribes, and elders were joyful, contented men? Is anyone happy who has to constantly keep up appearances and justify themselves To themselves and spin lies and believe those lies to soothe their conscience. Right? No, no one likes living a lie. Living in sin is really miserable. And one of the first signs of God's grace in our lives is that we recognize just how miserable we are without God. This is also one of the ways you know you belong to God, right? You're a Christian, you sin, you sin, and you're like, why does my life suck? (laughs) Well, God's trying to tell you something, man. <laughs> that God lets you be miserable in your sin is love. Right? How, remember Romans 1. How does God judge people when they're totally ungrateful to him, when they've actually sh- shut themselves off to him? It says he just gives them what they want. Right? Hell is God saying, Okay. I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want to be with me. Here you go. But repentance happens when you are willing to say, I am wrong. God is right. That's When we confess our sins and we kneel in that moment of silence, we should be thinking, where have I been wrong this week <laughs> or this morning? Uh, and where is God right? And I need to just say that. I was wrong. God, you are right. And then you go and make things right with whoever you wronged. This is what repentance is. This is what confession is. It is to say, I am not the highest authority around here. Christ is. And I am going to just submit myself to whatever judgment he gives. Whatever Christ says goes. The Jerusalem authorities were unwilling to undergo a very temporary humiliation so that they might be eternally exalted with Christ. Right? And this, is, this really is the offer to everyone. It's like you can either be humiliated and you know, suffer the, uh, the trials of being a Christian for a very short time, and then you get to live with Christ forever, or you get the opposite. You can have your reward here and then have punishment forever. That's the offer, and you can see what the Jerusalem authorities chose. When you refuse God's will for your salvation, the harder it gets to repent, and the more blind and miserable you become. And the person is self-deceived who thinks, I can sin now and I'll repent later. Right? This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, we then as workers together with Christ also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You can receive God's grace and it could be totally in vain. That's what church is. That's what the sacraments are. That's what prayer is. You can receive all of these graces from God and yet receive them in vain. This is the danger that Paul puts before them. So he says, In an acceptable time, I have heard you. He's quoting the Psalms. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, it's very dangerous to presume upon the grace and patience of God. Because you don't know when your last day will be. You don't know when God is going to say to you, I require of you your soul. And therefore, Paul says, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Lest you become like Esau, of whom it says in Hebrews twelve seventeen that when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Right? You can be born into a covenant home like Esau was. You can even be the firstborn. You could even really want the blessing. And yet when Esau sought an opportunity to repent, it wasn't there. His repentance wasn't authentic. The blessing had already gone to Jacob. If you refuse to repent now, what makes you think you will choose any differently later? Esau rejected God's blessing. He sold it to Jacob. And later when he wanted that blessing, his repentance was not genuine, but rather it was a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And we know this because what was Esau's repentance? Well, it was trying to kill his brother. <laughs> that was the repentance That Esau had. This is also what the Sanhedrin are going to try to do to Christ, right? They are Esau killing the son of promise. So remember, sin is a liar. Sin is a deceiver. Sin is not your friend. Sin promises life, but always leads to death. And the longer that you persist in your sin and reject Christ's authority, uh, the more miserable you will become. So make confession. Come clean. Do not do as the scribes and Pharisees and reject God's will for your life. All right, that's application number one. Second point of application. If Christ is Lord, then his authority has no boundaries. And therefore, your submission to Christ must be absolute. The sin that many professing Christians commit is that of thinking they can pick and choose which areas of their life they will surrender to God, and which areas will remain under uh, our own authority. Many Christians live as if Jesus can be Lord of certain parts of our life, you know, Sunday morning, but the rest of the week or the weekend belongs to me. And what is this but really the same sin as the Sanhedrin? Right? They let Christ clear out some portion of the temple, but anything more, and they'll murder him. If you are a temple, and the Bible says you are, then where is Christ not allowed to go? If your life is a house, which rooms are off-limits to Jesus? Is there a closet or an attic that is too messy to let him in? Is there a man cave where you keep your secret vices that no one knows about? I don't know what the female version of a man cave is, but you know what I'm talking about, right? We like to keep little portions of our life compartmentalized from God. But God will not have it. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of everything, and therefore your submission must be whole and entire. Whatever you have deemed off limits, whatever you are still holding on to as the authority, Jesus has come to take over. Why did Jesus suffer and die? Well, it's not because he wants 90% of you. God wants all of you. Why does he call us to repent of our sins? Because he wants you to actually be happy and to be at peace with him. The absolute authority of Jesus Christ is the greatest news in the world. It is the gospel. Because in Christ, perfect love and perfect goodness is married with perfect power. And that means God's authority in your life is always infallibly and unbreakably good for you. There is no place that if you let Christ into it, he will, not, he will make it better. Any place that you give Christ room and authority over, he will make it better. It might be embarrassing to let him see what is inside of you, but remember, uh, he already knows. So drop the front. Stop lying. Don't double down like the Pharisees did. Open the door and let Christ in. Let him rule everywhere. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, your word says that the Spirit searches us. And only the Spirit of man knows a man. And so I ask that your spirit would search each of us out. As we prepare to take this holy sacrament, as we prepare to take your body and blood, make us to be worthy of it. May may there be no hypocrisy, no lying, no falsehood in us. Purge us of our sins. Forgive us for thinking that we could have your authority and also ours as equals. We ask that you would bring repentance to our little town, to our little region, that your authority would be proclaimed, would be adored, that your name would be hallowed in Lewis County, in Centralia, in in Chehalis, this whole place. And God, as we celebrate and approach Christmas and remember your coming, make us to prepare in ourselves room for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says in John six fifty six, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. We all know what it means to eat bread and drink wine physically. But what does it mean to eat Christ's body and drink Christ's blood spiritually? How should we understand this spiritual eating? Well, just as our bodies hunger and thirst for food and drink, so also our souls hunger for something to satisfy it. This hunger and thirst of the soul is where all spiritual eating begins. We partake of Christ spiritually in this sacrament when we yearn and long for God's presence to indwell us. And when we taste the bread and taste the wine, we are helped along. We are assisted by our physical senses to know what is true spiritually, that Christ loves us and gives himself to us in this meal. It says in 1 John four fifteen to 16, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. The way that you can eat and drink Christ spiritually in this sacrament is by knowing and believing the love that he has for you. And by loving him in return. So come to this table with a yearning for God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. When you surrender everything to Jesus, it indeed can feel scary at first. But if you do what he says, if you will obey him, you will find that God is the kindest and most gracious authority there is. It is far better to be a slave to Christ than the master of your own misery. So surrender to him completely. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.